Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask you to enter into this with me today by stepping into somebody's shoes. Imagine if you were, if you could, that you were a individual who um, did some online sales and, you know, maybe just average stuff, kind of secondhand clothing, some car parts and car junk type of stuff to make a little bit of side income. And you've been selling this stuff online and of course people pay and they pay into your PayPal account and it builds up a certain balance. And so one day you wake up and you decide to go check your balance on PayPal, see how you're doing, see if you're going to make it through the month. And you open up your account and PayPal comes up and you see all the standard stuff and then you see the balance on there and you see this. That's... That's U.S. dollars, by the way. And in case you're still counting the number of commas there, that is not 92 million, nor billion, nor trillion, nor zillion, but 92 quadrillion dollars. That actually happened. There was an individual that was selling just secondhand clothes and car parts and things like this online and went and checked his balance one day, and that is what he saw. And so, of course, out of the kindness of PayPal's heart, they let him keep the money. The rest of us went broke because he owned it all now in the entire world. No, of course they didn't. They realized that uh, they credited him a bit too much, and so they fixed the account. And, of course, he lost all of that. But imagine if you could wake up one day and you saw that credited to your account. How would your life change? Imagine if such a situation could happen. Well, in fact, it did. Such a situation did happen. And it didn't happen just for one person, it happened for many. And that's what we want to talk about today. I'm going to start this back in Genesis again. We've been part of this origin story, and last week we looked at a moment in which Abraham had to um, sacrifice, or he was asked by God in a moment of testing to sacrifice his only son. He didn't understand all what that meant, but then came to realize that God wasn't actually going to ask him to go through with that, but was actually painting a picture for him, something to trust God, trust his promises, but ultimately that pointed towards God giving his own, very own son, uh, and paving the way for a, a, a new way for us where there was no way, a way through sin, a way through death, and into a new uh, a direction for all of us. That was part of the story, but the promise began earlier than that, before that test. And that takes us back at least as far back as Genesis 15. We see one of those first moments here where God makes this promise to to Abraham, and we need to see what that is because it all matters and it all is relevant to, to us. It starts in Genesis 15 where Abram, at the time he was Abram, God changed his name sometime later. We've looked at that in the series. God always, he knows our names. He has a new name for us, even as he has a new way for us. And so he applied that already to Abraham's life. But back at this point, he was still known as Abram. And so Abram said, to the Lord, you've given me no children, so I guess a servant in my household is going to have to be my heir. I, I don't know who to leave my stuff to. I don't know what to do when I leave this world, so I'm just going to pick one of the people serving in my household, and I guess they're going to have to take it because you haven't given me a child. 
But God responded and said, no, no, this, this servant is not going to be your heir. But a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He was speaking of Isaac, but he was speaking of more than that. And then he went on and he took Abram outside and he said, he continued the promise. He said, in fact, look up at the sky. Count the stars if indeed you can count them. And he said to Abram, so shall all your offspring be. You're going to have this many people, as many as the stars that are going to call themselves your descendants. They're going to be connected to you in some profound way. I promise this to you, Abram. And then we get this verse, that Abram believed God. He believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited that to him as righteousness, we're told. And that was the conclusion, and, and, and really the conclusion of the promise and the beginning of its fulfillment. But what does that mean? I mean, it's a sentence, we look at that, we're like, okay, that, that sounds interesting, but why is that really a foundation not of only Abram's life, but actually all of Scripture, all the way into when we hear about Jesus. This is a foundational statement. Why? I think we got to break it down to understand that, to understand what it means to us. And it starts really with this first thing. Abram, uh, the Lord credited to Abram righteousness. What does that word mean, righteousness? Because I think when I hear it, it, it sort of sounds like, you know, uh, I, I, maybe I'm holier than thou. I'm somebody's better a little, a little better than someone else. Or maybe somebody's figured out, you know, a way to do things more right than another. It, I don't know. It just doesn't, I don't connect that well to it. But the word righteousness is more than that. The word righteousness is the quality of being in right standing with God. The quality of being in right relationship with God. Nothing is inhibiting your relationship with God and your standing before him. Nothing. There's nothing to your account that could possibly separate you from him. That's what righteousness is. It's right standing with God. And the truth is that that quality, righteousness, right standing with God, is frankly not a quality that we have within ourselves. In fact, I, I saw an illustration recently that to me captured this because there's a way in which I think we like to flirt with that idea. And we'd like to kind of, you know, maybe feel that we're doing pretty good or, or you know, we've got our act together, maybe better than the next person. And, and so we do this in this world. And this is one of those ways in which I think, you know, we, we, we put a dressing on something that really doesn't look that good underneath. And, and so in this village in Lithuania, they were holding an annual beauty contest and they had a grouping of people there, and the news outlet reported that about 500 people attended a parade in honor of the winner, whose name was Little Spot. It's a strange name, right, for someone, until you find out that these were goats. <laughs> so they were having a beauty contest for goats. There were six goats they had up there wearing various arrangements of flowers and, and other things. And they were, you know, presented before a panel of judges. And then Little Spot, of course, was crowned, crowned uh, queen of the festivities. And then the person went on to say, the only thing we, uh, we didn't do to prepare the goat for the pageant is we didn't polish its nails. So, so I have this picture of this goat, you know, beautifully dressed up, just they forgot to paint its nails. And this is kind of the game that we play with ourselves because, you know, we paint ourselves up and dress ourselves up on the outside, but something else is really going on. And when I read that story, I couldn't help but think of what the prophet Isaiah told us so long ago, what he said in Isaiah 64. He said, we're all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. 
You see, we put the nail polish on the outside and we, we dress up with flowers and stuff, but really what we're just covering is a bunch of dirty dish towels. That's the real picture that Scripture gives us of ourselves. That's not an easy picture to swallow, is it? But if I could paint it another way, there's something that um, tries to capture this idea that I'd like to read for you. It's called Life on a Screen, based on a question some one person asked one time. See if you can identify with this. Someone once asked, what if your life was put up on a screen for every eye to see? Would people think of you differently? If you're like me, then the answer is yes. Kind of kills the delusion that you're better than the rest. Take a look at that screen and the person there that's seen. At one part, you exclaim, that's me. At another part, you cringe and think, I need to flee. One moment, respect. The next, revulsion. First proud, then ashamed. So what of that person on the screen, the one that bears your name? If you're like me, it's too much you to display publicly. Thank God that no one sees, except God who sees the screen. You see, God sees the screen. He sees every bit of who we are, not just the parts we paint with nail polish or flowers. He sees the whole thing. And so it begins to show that righteousness is really not what we present it to be. In fact, there's a place in Scripture when Jesus says when we do good things, in fact, those are really just the things that we're expected to do. But what about the other stuff? What does that display about our souls? There was a comic strip one time, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody recognize that one? A younger guy named Calvin and his best friend, the tiger. They had some great conversations. And one time they're kind of flirting with this idea. Calvin's hoping he's going to get a lot of Christmas presents, isn't sure. So this is how it went. Calvin says, you know, I'm getting a little nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, what, you worried you haven't been good? Calvin says, that's just the question. It's all relative, isn't it? I mean, how good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? To which Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And then Kelvin says, yeah, you see, that's what worries me. <laughs> we try to act like I haven't done this big bad thing. I'm not the big bad wolf, so I'm pretty good, aren't I? But maybe righteousness and right standing with God doesn't really work that way. And if it doesn't, and if it's more like the screen, then where does that leave us? In fact, if I could paint this one more time, I want to do this here. To really understand how this applies to us, if you would do me a favor, let's, let's put our heads down for a moment with no one looking around. I'm going to do the same. And you can respond to these by either just slightly raising your hand before God or just answer it in your heart. That's up to you. But let's have all heads down, eyes closed, and answer these questions. Have you ever lied to anyone? Have you ever stolen something that isn't yours, taken anything that is not yours? Have you ever looked at someone or something with lust or envied after something that wasn't yours? Uh, have you ever been angry at somebody without just cause or, you know, really just wanted to get someone when that, you know, that really shouldn't be your feelings? 
There's more we could ask, but you can raise your heads now, now that I've got all your names written down. I'm just uh, <laughs> No, I put my head down too. Those were questions for us to answer between us and God. But you know what we just learned, I bet? I'll trust this. Congratulations, we're in a room filled with liars, murderers, adulterers, and thieves. <laughs> and you might think I'm overplaying that, but I don't think so, because Jesus said that when you lie a little bit, you lie a lot. Jesus said that when you are angry with your brother without a cause or your sister without a cause, you, you, it's a fact like you've murdered them in your heart. When you look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. When you have taken even the smallest pack of gum, you are a thief because the scripture says that if you break one law, even one small commandment, you're guilty of breaking it all because to God, that's the screen. He can see the sum of your life in the areas in which we have fractured what we meant to be. You see, when we think of, of sin, when we think of being separated from God and being unrighteous, we tend to think of it as just breaking a legal contract. And so we think, well, how bad am I? I just stole a pack of gum, but this person over here, I think, murdered somebody, so I'm not really that bad, right? But we're missing the point. That is really not the view of what sin is and what it's done. You see... God made us in his image. He made us to, to preserve his image properly reflected. And the moment we do anything that is apart from that, we shatter that image. We inflict a wound into the image of God that we can't heal. We can't fix it. It's fractured now. And it was not the way that we were intended to be. And so someone or something has to now restore the image of God that was destroyed to clean up the screen and the parts we hide away. And so when we've done these things, we haven't just earned $50 worth of, of recompense and retribution or even 92 quadrillion, but we've actually earned the wages that Romans 6 tells us, the wages of sin, which is death. Spiritual death, physical death, the experience of death and brokenness and pain and shame and everything else that goes along with it and guilt that, that we experience in this world individually and collectively that we cause together. We're dead spiritually. Now, when you read that, I think the only thing you can say, like we talked about last week, is thank God that his promises are not based on what we do, but based on what he does. Because that's our situation. And so we learned that Isaac was that heir that was promised to Abraham, that son of flesh and blood, but it wasn't just him. See, because beyond that, many generations later, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, all the way through to King David, and eventually came Jesus. He was of that same bloodline. He was a son of Abraham from that same line of descendancy, and he was the one that went to that cross and took over our place. And so when he went to that cross and hung on that cross, and when he walked out of that tomb, that is the moment that God corrected this distortion, this fracture of this image. And when we place our faith in that, simply believe, Abraham believed God, we read. When we believe Christ for what he did and trust in him for what he did, then guess what happens? Guess what the scripture tells us happens for us? Now watch how he fulfills the promise that he made all those centuries ago. Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You are the ones God promised, as, as plentiful as the stars in the sky. You are the descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
We sit here as part of that family simply because we believed what God did. But guess what else he did for us? Since we're the fulfillment of that part of the promise God made to Abraham, guess what else he gave to Abraham that he also gave to us? Romans chapter 4, to the one who does not work, they don't trust in what they can do and their, and their nail polish and their flowers and everything else that they can dress up, but instead trust God who justifies the ungodly, the ones on the screen, their, what does it say? Faith is credited as righteousness. Did we read that somewhere before? That same fulfillment, that same promise that God gave to Abraham, that same thing he did for Abraham, crediting right standing to him because of his faith, he does to us as well. He credits right standing with God to us because of our faith. Practically, we're still goats. Congratulations. Anybody want to answer with a nay or anything like that? Go ahead. It's up to you. We're goats, practically, but positionally, we are standing right with God. In our presence, we still have shattered images. But in his presence, already, as well as one day, those images will be restored and made whole and perfect. That's what he did for us. This is called an exchange. You see, our death went to him. His righteousness comes to us. And I can tell you this, you you will not experience a changed life till you experience the exchanged life. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. He took our death so that in him we might become the righteousness of who? Ah. See, that's important. This is why it can never be enough if we're counting on ourselves and our own work because we don't have any righteousness. We can't gain it. We can't make it. Everything's already been broken. But that's not the righteousness that he promised to Abraham. That's not the righteousness that he promised to us. He promised his very own nature of being in right standing. God never sins, never will. Jesus never sinned, never will. He is perfectly whole and holy and right, and he credits that to our account. You see, if we try to do it ourselves, it might be $50 worth, might be $1,000 worth, but I can tell you what, that's not gonna be enough to restore that fractured image. But with God, it's a little bit more than that. His righteousness is a little more than 1,000, 10,000, million. It's more than 92 quadrillion. It's infinitely more. And he credits it to our account. Think of that word credit. When you deal with a credit card company, we, that's how we understand this word, right? You go to a place, you have nothing with you except a piece of plastic. Think about how crazy and ridiculous this is. You walk into a place, you say, give me those couches right there. I'll take that lamp. Then I buy the, oh, can, uh, that new TV, that 4K TV, I'll take that one. No, not the 50-incher. I want the 80-incher, right? And we buy all this, and we hand somebody a piece of plastic, and they go, it's yours. Take it home. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, but they're sending you the bill later. right. That's how credit works in this world, right? You paid on credit. You had nothing in exchange for what all you were given, but then you got to pay later. But what if that credit card company called you and said, hey, by the way, we're not just giving you the money for that stuff. We're going to give you $92 quadrillion. Thank you, PayPal. All right, we're going to give that to you, and you're not going to have to pay it back. 
Have fun. Use it. Who would do that? Nobody you're going to find here. Certainly not PayPal. Guy found that out. But that's what God did. He credited all of his account to yours and said, it's yours. I'm going to give it to you because you trusted in me. It's going to be your resource that I'm going to use and apply in your life. And you're not going to have to pay it back because somebody already paid for it. He did that on a cross. What an exchange. We're told that we're justified before God. We're made right with him. That means declared innocent of all charges. Not because of anything we did. We're guilty. But because of what he did, he's made us innocent because we've taken his righteousness. This is called in some circles imputed righteousness. He imputed his righteousness to our account. Almost like you wear a, clo- a coat that isn't yours. You look a heck of a lot better than a goat now because you've got a nice coat that you're wearing. So practically, we're still goats. But he has clothed us in something new. Now that right there would be enough to know that as Jeremiah prophesied, this one that would come and, and who he would be when he said, the time is coming, says the Lord. I'll raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. There it is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, all the way down, that's Jesus He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He'll do what is just and right throughout the land, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you see who he is? He is our righteousness. He's bringing righteousness to apply to our account, his own. Now, gosh, that would be enough. But wait, there's more. I don't mean to make this trite. This is not a sales pitch. This is something that I can't even wrap my head around. Because if God just stopped there and said, okay, I've, I've, I've made you in right with standing with me, the problem, of course, is we can look at it and go, well, I can blow it again, can I? Yeah, but that's not where he stopped. Because he doesn't just apply his righteousness to us, he goes further. There was a guy in a, uh, wrote about a college test that he was taking. Um, he lived in Lubbock, Texas, and he remembered that this was his last college test. It was a, a final and it was known for like, this, this professor was known for incredibly difficult exams. Very few people even passed, let alone got a high grade. And so he remembered this test. He said, to help us on the test, the professor told us we could bring as much information to the exam as we could fit on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. So students were showing up, he said, and everybody, including himself, cramming as many facts as possible on this sheet of paper. He said, but I remember one student walked into class, and he was allowed to do this because it, it fit what the professor had, had promised they could do. He walked into class, he put a piece of notebook paper on the floor and had an advanced student who had already passed the exams years prior stand on the paper. <laughs> had him stand right there. And every time he needed to know something, he asked the guy and the guy gave him everything he needed to know and he got the only A on the exam. <laughs> now that might sound a little bit manipulative and perhaps it was, I don't know about the ethics of that there. But that aside, I'll tell you what that story does communicate to me. That this guy was smart enough to know he didn't have what it took. He didn't have the answers. He didn't have the abilities. He didn't have the strength and the power to get an A on this exam and pass. But he knew somebody who could. And he brought them in and they carried him across the finish line. They carried him through the tough moments. They gave the power, the abilities, the knowledge and everything else, the wisdom that he needed to be more than he was. That's what happened in that moment. And that is exactly, exactly what God promised he did for us. Because it's not just that he 
applies his righteousness or right standing to our account. That wipes away the sin problem, but we still need something because we're a dead body and we still got to pass an exam, don't we? We still got to figure out how to succeed in this thing. And frankly, in a world like this of brokenness, it's incredibly difficult to do. And so what did God do with that? He gave us not just a new way, he gave us a new life. Galatians chapter two, I have been crucified with Christ, the apostle teaches. I went into his death with him because he died for me and gave that death. He exchanged my death for his. So now I'm gonna enter into that with him. And now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's something more God wants to do spiritually, supernaturally. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, he still lives, but it's Christ living in him. There's a partnership and a connection and somebody in there that even though he's taking the exam, somebody's there that has the answers. Even though he is still trudging through life, there's somebody there that's gonna turn the power on and give him the strength that he needs. Christ in me, who is going to live through me. And so I'm going to live by faith. There's that word again. By believing in that and trusting in that. He wants, he he came and took our death. Our death went to him. So his righteousness could come to us, yes, but there's more. Our death went to him so his life could come to us. That's the gospel. It's a new life. I like how C.S. Lewis said this. He said, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. That's what God was doing. Thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. Why? Because he intends to come and live in it himself. He wants to live in this little cottage and make it into a palace. If I trust that, if I allow that, I yield to that. How do we do it? How do I appropriate such, such a life, such a strength, such an ability, such a wisdom? What hoops do I have to jump through? What, what formula works? What's the secret sauce? There isn't any. We, we were told, I live by faith. I trust in that. I trust more in him than what I can do. When you, and this is, how does this faith thing work? Well, when you walked in today, People in the sanctuary here, people out there in the atrium, even those of you sitting at home, sitting on a couch, when you sat down, how many of you looked around and said, is this going to support me? Did you, did you jostle the seat or check the screws underneath the pew and make sure it was going to hold you up? Or did you sit down and trust that it was going to be able to uphold you? You just took action. That's what faith is. Faith is not coming to Christ saying, well, great, he did all this stuff for me, so now I get to go live the way I want. I don't think you heard this message if that's how we're thinking of it. Because it's about coming to a place of realizing that, that we're so fractured and the wages of sin is death that we need a new life and somebody comes and says, I can give you my life and I'll apply it to you, but first you've got to die to yourself. Are you ready to do that? And when you welcome that person in, your life is theirs. And they call the shots and they call and, and they tell you the rules and they help you to make the decisions. Every breath by faith, every decision by faith, every thought by faith. Do we fall short? Yes. And when we do, you fall short by faith. 
And you come back to the one who can restore you by faith. And it's that one who will meet you there and give you grace and impart new life by faith. That's the walk of faith. I mean, it's actually a sad tragedy, even a parody of life. It's almost a jest. When we think that we can do this by our own effort, that somehow our works are going to get us there. It's like an, that's like an ant asking a bulldozer to step a stand aside so it can move a 10-ton block. That ant's not going to be able to move that 10-ton block. I don't care how much he thinks. It's not going to budge an inch. It needs the bulldozer. It needs somebody who can really handle it. And so when we do these things, and you, maybe you've been here because I know I've been there, when we start to operate in our faith, in our, in, our, in, in our walk with God, out of trying to do things in order to assuage some guilt that we carry or out of proving something to the people around us or making sure that we're as good as them because they certainly seem a lot better than we are. I had a conversation recently with a friend and we said this and they looked at me and said, you know, I just don't know. I feel like I've disappointed God. I said, God, congratulations, you have. It was a great pep talk. They're not talking to me anymore. I'm not sure why. But I said, and so have I. We both have. I said, hey, what, you know, what's on your screen? Would you show it to me? You want to show me the screen of your whole life? No. I said, guess what? I don't want to show you mine either. Because it's ridiculous if we are counting on the strength of that. We will always be empty. We will always be struggling. We will always feel more guilty. We will always be somebody we're not meant to be. We might be able to dress it up with fingernail polish. We might be able to put some nice flowers on, but it is a shattered image, no matter how good we can make it look. But when it's simple faith in the one who did it all for us, and we, we know that he, our death went to him, and in exchange, his life comes to us, then it only makes sense to complete that circle and give our life to him. Romans 12. It's a picture of Isaac. Think about it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of this mercy that God has done for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Brothers and sisters, be like Isaac. Put yourself right on that altar. Don't worry. God's not going to do you one wrong. He's not. He's going to step in like he did with Isaac and rescue him even as he rescued you. And he is going to exchange you for him. And it is going to work. So step in and give yourself over and have faith. Hopefully we see that this is not a boast. This is a, a recognition with gratitude when you, when you understand this, right? And a trust to sit down in the chair. And it will not only sustain you, but it has power to transform you. He can do that. And I think this is so important. This is my final point to you. As the worship team comes to join us here, because I really believe this is the peace that we miss with this promise. Because right now in this world, we still have to deal with all this damage and brokenness, don't we? We still have to deal with this pain. Jesus carrying a cross can, can turn pain into purpose, and it does, but that alone still is not sufficient. You know why? The pain is still real. 
It's still in our lives. I think of somebody who was talking to me recently, and they were telling me about someone they know who trusted an individual, not anything in, in this place, but it's actually a younger person who trusted an individual, and that person betrayed them and violated them. When I think of things like that, I think of the pain of this world. You know, last week we talked about how we had a flood in this church, right? In the back. It was just a couple of rooms in the back. A pipe broke. We got it under control. A couple of pieces of drywall. Fixes it right up, right? We're moving on. Those kind of things, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of a fallen world, but that's not that big of a deal. But what do you do when somebody has been violated to the inner parts of their soul? And they carry that every day. Even as they have faith in Jesus and they know Jesus forgave them and, 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 and is doing things in their life, they're still carrying the presence of that pain. What do you do with somebody who, who watched their parent die after a debilitating disease and to walk through that with them? Or when parents lose their child after many years of walking through something similar? All the pain they carried of that. What about all the shame and the guilt that's on the screen that we carry every day. What deals with that? I think of a moment when a blind man was encountered by Jesus. And Jesus healed him. He used the same kind of power that we're talking about that's available here. And that man was met by people later and they were trying to figure out what happened here? What did this? What, what caused this? Who is that? Is he a good man? Is he a bad man? What, what can you tell us? And he says, look, I don't know. I don't know any of that. All I know is this. I was once blind, and now I see. That's all I know. I was blind, but now all I know is sight. What if, what if there's coming a day when a, a person will stand in front of us who was once a young person, and they will say, you know, I could tell you about all the things that happened, that how I was violated. And I could tell you about the psychological and spiritual damage that I cared, that I could tell you about, but, but let me just tell you this. I was once that person, but now I'm whole. I was once damaged and hurt, but now I'm whole. That's all I know. Or I once lost that person and was deeply, tragically destroyed over the loss of them, but, but now I know joy. Because their life has been restored. What, what, if, what if that could be the case? Not 92 quadrillion dollars to solve a few financial problems, but somebody who could literally bring life into the midst of a world of death and pain. Well, guess what? That situation happened too. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that's where we stand today. That if you are carrying, and perhaps you're this person, Caring a sin or a shame or a guilt, but you brought it to him in faith. Or you're a person who is carrying a loss of a loved one and you don't know how you're going to get beyond that loss. Or you're, you're carrying a violation, something that's damaged you psychologically deep down inside and you don't know how to get past it. Well, guess what? You follow a, a savior who didn't just wink at pain, he didn't just treat tears as something where he might try to slow the flow. But he wiped every tear away. He is one who entered into the pain 
and then explodes it from the inside. And that's what he did when he walked out of that tomb. And that is what is promised to us, all who would hold on to faith in him. One day when we rise as he rose, we will know that day when we will say, all I know is I was once broken. Now I'm whole. Jesus offers that new way, that new life to you and me. If you would just put simple faith in him, he comes to make us new and make us new through and through. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is or belongs to Christ, they've become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. There will be those up in front for prayer if that's what you seek. In the meantime, may we walk in the grace and the new life of Jesus Christ by faith today. Father, thank you for this new way. Thank you for the new life that you provide in Jesus Christ. And we receive it by faith today with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, the church said.